Good morning, friends. Michael, you sounded this morning like I did uh, a couple of preaching occasions back. Um, so everybody loves a good comeback story, yeah? A lot of times we think of these associated with, uh, with athletic contests. As I was racking my brain, uh, trying to think through some, uh, a few came to mind. Uh, the 2004 Boston Red Sox, down three games to nothing to their nemesis and arch-rival New York Yankees in the ALCS, trailing in the ninth inning of game four, coming back to win games four, five, six, and seven, advancing to the World Series, and uh, eliminating a, a World Series title drought that went back for them all the way to 1918. Uh, for some of you football fans, you may recall the 1993 playoff game between the Buffalo Bills and uh, they were at that time the Houston Oilers. <clears throat> the Oilers pushed their lead in the third quarter to 35-3. to And then behind backup quarterback Frank Reich, <clears throat> the Bills came all the way back, forced overtime, and won that game 41-38 to in what many still think of as the greatest comeback in NFL history. Uh, footnote on that, Frank Reich, the quarterback of the Bills that day, led a similarly uh, you know, borderline miraculous comeback in college about a decade before when he came off the bench for the University of Maryland, leading them to overcome a 31-point deficit against the Miami Hurricanes. Maybe the gold standard of uh, athletic comeback stories, and this one definitely uh, merges underdog story with comeback story, though, uh, was the 1980 United States men's Olympic hockey team defeating the dominant and seemingly invincible Soviet uh, hockey team in the 1980 Olympics in a game in which they trailed for 33 minutes, did not hold a lead until the last 10 minutes of the game, and were outshot by a total of, let me check my notes, 39 to 16. They only got off 16 shots on goal in the entire game. We love stories like that, right? Uh, stories of redemption, stories of victory at the final buzzer, stories of victory at the 11th hour, so to speak. Maybe more than athletic victories, we are awed in the face of last-minute medical deliveries. Say, for example, a mom gets rushed in to surgery to have an emergency C-section because the baby's heart rate is dropping. And through the quick-thinking uh, intervention of the doctors, a matter of minutes later comes the good news that mom and baby are going to be fine. Those, uh, those kinds of rescues at the last minute, improbable though they may have appeared at one moment, they capture our attention, they capture our admiration, don't they? But in a far grander sense than sporting events or quick-thinking physicians, there is a direction to the redemptive deliveries that take place in Scripture that our passage uh, this morning wants to help us get our bearings on. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 9. You can go ahead and turn there if you haven't done so already, which means that you know we are not preaching a traditional Palm Sunday passage on Palm Sunday. Happy Palm Sunday to you, by the way. Uh, we read the passage in our, in our opening worship. We're not going to preach the passage this morning. It's not because it wouldn't be a wonderful passage to preach, but it's simply a reflection of the fact that our next chunk of Scripture uh, in our series through the Gospel of Luke actually fits very well uh, with, with where Passion Week is headed, and we'll see that here 
uh, in a moment. We're going to be in Luke 9, 37 to 45 this morning, and, and in particular, this passage is situated in between uh, the, the revelation of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, which we saw last Sunday, and then the Sunday following Easter, it leads into the passage in which the disciples get into an argument amongst themselves about who is the greatest. If we want to put our passage today in the framework of the redemptive storyline, uh, we, we will see that our passage shows Jesus once again delivering, right, providing deliverance from demonic affliction uh, on his way to being delivered into the hands of his enemies, which itself is on the way to delivering captives from the last enemy. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll jump in together. Heavenly Father, we need your word uh, this morning, and we're grateful that you have provided it for us. We ask that you would prepare our hearts now to receive a word that none of us here would be capable of supplying on our own, nor for that matter receiving without your aid. And so we ask that you would send your spirit to meet us in this moment and to multiply this offering to the effect of great faith, maybe even new faith for some. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, the first part of our passage, uh, which begins in Luke 9.37, tells us of Jesus' deliverance of a boy uh, from an unclean spirit. <clears throat> Picking it up in verse 37, we read, on the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him, so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So Jesus... <clears throat> Peter, John, and James come down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and a man with an only child begs Jesus to deliver his son. Prior to Jesus' arrival, he had evidently asked the other nine disciples to cast the demon out, but they could not, which strikes us at least initially as a little bit surprising in light of what Jesus had said and done by giving them authority over the demons back in chapter 9 verse 1. But on hearing of the disciples' inability, Jesus responds with his, O oh, faithless generation comment, before intervening to heal the boy himself. <clears throat> now, Mark and Matthew both have an account of this passage, and those uh, accounts contain this same, O oh, faithless generation comment. And yet, both Mark and Matthew go into more detail about why it is that the disciples failed. Their answers for the disciples' failure are respectively lack of prayer and little faith. So 
whoever else Jesus may have had in mind when he makes the comment, O faithless generation, it seems pretty clear that the disciples are at least included in that criticism, right? If not the centerpiece of it. It seems, perhaps, that the disciples had grown self-reliant and presumptuous rather than dependent on Jesus, perhaps assuming that because this authority had been delegated to them, it was now somehow inherent to them, right? So the lengthiest of the three accounts is Mark's gospel. Uh, Kenny actually preached on that passage, uh, 2015, I think it was, when we were going through Mark's gospel. I went back and listened uh, to that message to see what I might glean, and there's a lot of things to glean. Quick sidebar. Like you, I enjoy um, listening to preachers from time to time who are not a part of this congregation and have maybe, you know, a certain name recognition, certainly uh, can benefit from that. I'm so grateful. I, my, favorite, my favorite place to sit under preaching is here. Um, and, 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 and for one, I mean, I think the preaching is really, really solid. But, but, but beyond that, what you get when you sit under preaching in your home congregation that you don't get from a, from a name preacher is, name preacher, it's here today, gone tomorrow, or turn on the podcast, turn off the podcast. But the preachers that we hear on a regular basis, we live with. We rub elbows and shoulders with, and we not only hear their message, but we get to see them live their message in times of, uh, of, of great, great heights and times of difficulty as well. So anyway, just my gratitude for that. So anyway, a lot of really good things. In that. You, sh- you should check it out. A lot of good things in that sermon. Uh, I'm going to draw attention to one. And it's going to be a super loose quotation, so sorry if I get it wrong, uh, Kenny, but, but <clears throat> he said something to the effect in that, pas- in that passage that faith diminishes and prayer pauses where we doubt God's willingness or ability to intervene. Faith diminishes, prayer pauses where we doubt God's willingness or inability, or excuse me, ability to intervene. So, because of the disciples' faithlessness at that point probably rested on presumptive self-reliance, it manifests in that moment not only faithlessness towards Jesus, but a misplaced faith in themselves. Whatever, Kenny went on to say, whatever, whatever we do in place of prayer is where we find our faith is actually directed. In any case, uh, in, in our passage, right, uh, we get another glimpse of Jesus' omnipotent love in healing this boy and restoring him to his father. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, I was trying to take uh, my, own, my own medicine a little bit from the last time I preached. We did the ask, linger, share thing. It, it makes sense if you were here for that. If not, don't worry. But anyway, I was trying to do that, meditating on this passage, something to linger over in praise. And then, and then I tried sharing an observation with my family through text. Here's what I said. Uh, healing the boy and giving him back to his father was a very tender and compassionate expression of Jesus' love. But it struck me that Jesus' tenderness to the boy and his father wouldn't have carried nearly as much weight if he didn't also have the power to overthrow the demonic affliction. So I was encouraged that Jesus' love is perfect love because it is omnipotent love. 
both perfectly compassionate and perfectly powerful, not just one without the other. If he had the power but not the compassion, he would not have helped. If he had the compassion without the power, he could not have helped. Because of who he is, he's able to deliver this boy from his affliction and deliver us from our sins. Love that, right? That was it. Uh, So this boy's father, right, in our story, is is close now to the end of his rope, which means his story is a really beautiful example of what we've been calling 11th hour deliverance, isn't it? How long has it been that his son has suffered and been shattered and convulsed like this? Mark's account makes it seem like it's, it hasn't been a weekend. It's been a while, <clears throat> right? Mark says from childhood. And this guy, this father, has gone about as high up the chain as he possibly can. He's asked the disciples, whom he almost assuredly had heard, have the authority to cast out demons, and they couldn't do it. So now Jesus shows up, and he turns finally to his last best hope. It struck me that this is probably similar uh, to the story from chapter 8 in Luke's gospel of the woman with the issue of blood, who had spent 12 years and all of her financial resources on physicians trying to overcome this particular issue uh, and finding that she could not. So why does the Lord let us get to the end of our rope sometimes? Why not just prevent the demonic affliction in the first place? Or prevent the issue of blood from ever happening? Or cast out the demon at least on day number one and not day 5,000? I don't know. Two reasons come to mind. Uh, The first is that Jesus lets us experience and feel the weight of our need. That is a hard thing. It is also a good thing. We need to feel the weight of spending our resources and experiencing the reality that they are not enough. See, in order to know what we must know and to embrace the sufficient and omnipotent love of Jesus, we must first become convinced of our own insufficiency. So when he's letting us feel that weight, however hard that may be, That takes us back to a very important point from Jackson's sermon uh, a few weeks ago when the disciples were in the boat with Jesus in the midst of the storm and Jesus was sleeping. And and this is a loose quote too, so sorry, Jackson, but he urged us at that time in a way that I I found very helpful, something like the following. Something like this, be careful not to assume that just because you cannot see what Jesus is up to in your difficulty, that he must therefore, in fact, not be doing anything at all. In other words, don't trust just what your eyes can see. Second reason, I think, that the Lord lets us get to the end of our rope before some of these deliverances is actually to prepare us for what comes next for what to do when the 11th hour deliverance doesn't come. I know that some of you are wondering that. You came to church wondering that today. What about when the clock ticks down to triple zeros? Surely it's too late then, right? Wouldn't that prove 
that he was either unable or unwilling to deliver me from my dilemma? That's an important question. I want to give a quick observation and then elaborate a little bit. Uh, observation, the quick observation first. So the fact that the Lord does sometimes do these 11th hour deliverances means that it is absolutely okay to pray for them. Okay? Some very sincere believers will struggle at times with the perception that because God has sovereignly allowed X into their life, maybe I shouldn't pray for its removal. The fact that he does 11th hour deliverances means it's okay to pray for them so long as it is the 11th hour. And, and, and sometimes he will. The other side of that coin, however, is the fact also that because he does not always do the 11th hour deliverance, our hope in Christ means that ultimately our hope must rest in something beyond 11th hour deliverance. Our hope in Christ must ultimately rest not in what he sometimes does, but in what he promises to his sheep he will do 100 times out of 100 times. You know where this is going, don't you? <clears throat> so let me introduce you to a friend. A friend who's helped me quite a bit with this. I've never met him, <laughs> but I sure am thankful for him. Um, his name is Ed Welch. Uh, he works for an organization. He's a faculty member and administrator for an organization called CCEF, which stands for the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. You can find their stuff online at ccef.org. I really appreciate and have been tremendously helped um, by this organization in the way that they apply really good pastoral theology to a whole host of issues, uh, everything from anxiety to anger to addiction to everything in between. Um, just tremendously helpful. And so Ed Welch wrote this book a few years ago um, entitled Running Scared, Fear, Worry, and the God of Rest. It's a good book. In it, he describes three different biblical expressions of God's deliverance, okay? Three, three categories for us. Here's the first one. The first one he calls God's quiet care, Deliverance before we know we need it. God's quiet care, deliverance before we know we need it. And, and so here's what he's thinking of. Um, every meal you ever eat, which is a gift from the Lord, prevents your hunger and starvation before you know you are hungry and starving. Every cold from, from which we ever recover and does not progress to being some kind of more severe respiratory ailment for which we need hospitalization is an intervention that prevents us from getting into a more dire medical condition before we realize we have anything other than the sniffles. He says, <clears throat> how many times has the good shepherd fought wild beasts to keep us safe while we peacefully grazed, unaware of his heroic care? What do we, how, how much do we not see? The second expression of, of uh, God's deliverance uh, is he calls it also 11th hour deliverance. That's where I got this concept from. 
and this is largely what we've been discussing. Other examples include um, Abraham and Sarah's miraculous pregnancy when they're well beyond childbearing age. If God, if, God, if God can give them Isaac when they're way too old to have kids, he could have done it decades prior too, right? Uh, it includes things like not splitting the Red Sea until Pharaoh's army has been allowed to catch up. <laughs> and you're pinned with your, right, backs to the Red Sea. I mean, he could have split the Red Sea well in advance of that. The third expression. Welch calls the third expression God's deliverance after hope dies. God's deliverance after hope dies. For the sake of memorability and convenience, I'm going to call this one 13th hour deliverance, right? So 11th is at the last minute, 13th, by all estimation, it's too far gone, okay? So he says, and I agree, 11th hour deliverances, spectacularly, spectacular as they are, were actually just a prelude to something even more dramatic. It's the end of the quote. Sometimes the Lord does 11th hour deliverance when he does. He's glorified as those moments induce our dependence upon him. But sometimes, and this will happen to everyone in this room, and to some extent it probably already has, Sometimes he does not deliver at the 11th hour or any other hour prior to that. So everyone here needs the word that comes next. We pick it up in the second half of verse 43, where Jesus tells his disciples he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So while the crowd responds with astonishment, Jesus turns again to tutor his disciples. Now for the second time, he implores them to receive the nature of his mission. He did this previously after Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ of God. Our passage in verse 45 tells us that the disciples did not understand this saying. Now, to be sure, they could understand the grammar and syntax, right? They, they, understood, the, they understood the content of the sentence. What they couldn't understand or could not fathom was how that could happen to him. How can this happen to him? After all, some of them had just seen his transfigured glory. They just saw him cast out another demon. If he dies, so does every hope they've pinned on him, they assume. Now, to be fair, this is the hardest test. This is the test of the righteous sufferer. And we get it. We still ask the same questions. We all need lots and lots of help here. But Jesus is challenging their expectations of how he would provide for their most deeply needed deliverance, how he would provide for ours. See, the difference between Jesus and us is this. We would self-protect from pain and death if we had the power, but we don't. Jesus had both the power and the prerogative to self-protect, but for your sake and mine, he didn't exercise it. So whatever else is true, friend, 
Whether he chooses to heal now or resurrect later, he is profoundly trustworthy. Luke also tells us, not only did they not understand it, but he, he goes on to say that uh, this saying from Jesus was concealed from them. Why is that? I, I take it it was concealed from them by the Lord. I think there's, right, you know, what, kind of what we said about 11th hour deliverance a moment ago, even amplified here. To understand the magnitude of their need and the depth of his provision they need to stand bankrupt of self-reliance, not only late in the game, but when the clock sits at triple zeros after being routed, like they felt on Good Friday. See, he's prepping them for the final exam. He's prepping them for 13th hour deliverance, the deliverance above every deliverance that forces them onto the reliance that can only come from the God who raises the dead. They don't get it yet, but they will. And so can you. If you've never gotten that before, we would love to talk with you about that after the, after the service today. Don't we need this? I know some of you feel your need for this. As I was uh, preparing this week, We got the news on uh, Thursday that my wife's best friend from childhood through college was on a uh, ski trip with her family for their spring break. And her husband, Stuart, got in a really severe snow skiing accident. And they had to medevac him uh, immediately to Denver in ICU you know, trying everything they could. And then we got the call on Friday that despite everything they had attempted, the injuries were too severe. And he had passed. So, he leaves behind a young widow, three teenage girls. How do you stand at that casket if you don't have the hope of 13th hour deliverance. Clocks hit all zeros. Where does hope come from then? So, for the moment, uh, instead of leaning in, the disciples respond to this statement from Jesus with fear. Right? The, 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 the concept of the righteous suffering unto death of their great hope was too terrifying to contemplate. So what did they do? In their fear, they sought distraction. The, right, the next passage uh, begins with the discussion of a debate between the disciples of who's the greatest among them. That's a, apparently a much more comfortable thing to talk about. I'm not saying that we know for sure that was the very next thing they did, but the point is that in Luke's presentation of the gospel, those are the two passages he juxtaposes. Right? He, he wants us to feel the incongruency there. And fear, fear tempts us similarly, doesn't it? And what they're doing and what we sometimes do, it's just escapism 101. Hard things are scary. Change the channel, please. You know what that feels like. 
Of course, temporary distractions and escapes will not deliver them, will not deliver us. There's only one deliverer who can. And friends, our Good Friday and Easter uh, Sunday sermons will have a lot more to say about that good news and that hope. So please come back. Please make it a priority to come back to invite a friend who, who maybe needs to hear or hear again. <clears throat> uh, to whet your appetite just a little bit for the Sunday sermon next week, I believe Eric is preaching. I'm just, all I'm going to do, I'm just going to read his passage, okay? I'm not going to... It's Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Doesn't that sound like really, 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 really good news? So come back. Of course, it's not as though this struggle is a one-time thing, right? To be sure, on this day, the disciples had a long way to go. We have a long way to go. Here's the point, though. It's a long way to go with Jesus. He is, despite his exasperation, Jesus is profoundly patient with his disciples, with us, with us his sheep. He's going to bear patiently with confusion that they have that does not fully resolve until after the resurrection. He is going to bear patient, patiently and to forgive and restore those who deny him, who flee from him, and who doubt his resurrection. Do you respond to your own imperfect growth and setbacks like that? Jesus bears with us for the sake of who he bought us to be, and the job that he started, he will surely complete. Some of us maybe need to be reminded today, he doesn't have buyer's remorse. When he paid your 13th hour debt, he knew what he was getting, and he knows what he's doing. So friend, if that's you, stop beating yourself up as though you had to do penance in order to receive that love. It's not, it's not penance. It's reception. Uh, yeah. Well, when the disciples finally get that there is 13th hour deliverance in Christ, they become transformed. They become courageous ambassadors of the good news that our sins have been perfectly paid for by the death of Jesus. They herald the message that since death is not the end of his story, neither will death end the stories of those who rest in his deliverance by faith, which is utterly necessary news. Because unless Jesus returns before our time comes, every single one of us will go down that 13th hour rabbit hole. But here's the thing, friends. Followers of Jesus won't go down first. You won't go down alone and you will come out the other side in the relentless grip of nail-scarred hands. One of the reasons we gather for worship on a weekly basis is to help prepare one another for that final exam, isn't it? We don't like to talk about it, but we do need to prepare for that. And in order to do that, we must get to know Jesus not only generically, but the Jesus specifically who at the center of his fixation is heading headlong into that tomb. We must learn why he does that, that it's not out of kilter or offbeat, 
that in doing so, he has come to lead captives free? Because you see, if Jesus had only healed and delivered and had not gone to the cross to pay our debt, those expressions of healing would only be momentary reprieves on a road that would finally end in devastating defeat. Jesus is preparing his disciples, he's preparing us to know that in his own sacrifice, he's come not just to drive out disease and demons, but to burst death's bonds so that it can never grab hold of you again. Isn't that amazing to think about? Jairus' daughter died, was raised, later died again. Lazarus died, was raised, later died again. Those foreshadowed something that was better even than those we could call them little r resurrections. The kind of resurrection that death can never touch again. <clears throat> when that happens, and we see his face, and you get engulfed in the very first embrace of those nail-scarred hands, Paul says it will all have been utterly worth it, right? A light and momentary affliction in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. So here's what I'd like to propose uh, in our final moments. It's a form of uh, rehearsing redemption story. As you guys know, it can strengthen faith to share stories of how God delivered, uh, to hear stories of others of how God delivered. So following closing worship, um, here's what I'd like to recommend. Number one, if you're in the midst of a trial and your faith needs strengthening, there will be prayer team members up front, right? To my left, your right. To my right, your left. And if you're in that situation, please come and share your burden. They'd love to help you carry it. For the rest of us, here's what I'd like to recommend. Before we conclude and everybody turns to say, and what's for lunch or what's for breakfast or, you know, where are we going for coffee or whatever, try sharing with one other person. Okay, one other person, one occasion of when the Lord showed up to strengthen, sustain, or preserve you in a hard circumstance. Okay? If you prefer, if you prefer uh, a biblical story as opposed to a personal story, that's fine. If there's a biblical story where that's, that's really meant a lot to you, uh, in which the Lord did the same kind of thing, a biblical story that has sustained and encouraged your faith, that's fine. Five minutes before you head to the, you know, coffee donuts or whatever, I guess we're not having those yet. Uh, five minutes of conversation, right? Then maybe carry those conversations over on your drive home and over the lunch table. I'd encourage you to consider allowing some time for those kinds of testimonies uh, during grace groups this week as well. And, of course, it's okay if you tell a familiar story, right? It's okay if you tell the same story that somebody else in your grace group shares. It's not a competition you know, who has the most novel story. The, the, the point is that the story you select has been an instrument of the Lord's mercy in your life. And then finally, come back again on Friday and Sunday as we gather together to rehearse once more the greatest story of them all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, yours is the name above all names. You came to set the captives free, and you did so by paying our unpayable debt. We honor you for that, Lord Jesus. And we pray now and throughout this week that as we reflect on that and anticipate 
rehearsing that good news again on Friday and Sunday, that we would find the courage and strength to rest afresh in your 13th hour deliverance. Amen.